Romans seven fifteen to 25. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is the story of a girl named Janie, who's as real, in a way, as she is fictitious. She was born to a middle-of-the-road family, the third of five children, all a couple of years spaced. And for the most part, Janie had a good life growing up. She would play with her siblings late into dusk, blissfully unaware of the wider world going on around her. She would go to church on Sunday, be bored out of her gourd during the service itself, the long-winded pastor probably the worst of it, almost as bad as the prayers that went on for five or ten minutes that she was always expected to sit still during. But then would come Sunday school, with fun lessons and flannel graphs and running in the field out back with her friends, deliberately ignoring her mother's warnings of what would happen to her when she got home if she got her Sunday dress dirty, warnings that while of course were scary at the time, never seemed to be serious enough to keep her from finding some new frogs in the ditch while her parents talked in the parking lot for what seemed like hours on end after everything let out. All in all, things were pretty good growing up for Janie. And then she turned six. Her birthday was on a Sunday. We had that in common. And she woke up excited to go to church because when you were six and it is your birthday, suddenly going to church where all your friends are is a really big deal. You get to be the special one then. And so after a breakfast, a cream of wheat, and a very quick happy birthday from her family, all of Janie's siblings and her parents loaded into the family van and off they drove, speeding just enough that anyone who saw them knew they were off to church. Janie's Sunday school teacher, also her aunt as it was a rural church and all, surprised her when she finally got to class. There, tied to the chair, was a big yellow balloon filled with helium, the words happy birthday sloppily scrawled on it in sharpie ink. 
An instant smile went across Janie's face when she saw it, grabbing for it as she took her seat. Then the lesson began, and as her aunt talked, Janie, first absent-mindedly and then not so absent-mindedly, played with the balloon as Sunday school went on. The class that day was on sin and hell, both topics pretty heavy for six-year-olds, I personally would think, especially as that is right at the age the children are beginning to develop an understanding of what guilt is. But in the wisdom and expertise of the curriculum writers, these were the subjects on the docket, so why would Janie's aunt ever think to question it? And so, Janie, only half listening to the lesson, played with her balloon, squishing it, rubbing it, crinkling it, first a little and then a lot, and as she did, the balloon had the audacity to do what all balloons do when you play with them. It made an absolute racket. At first, Janie and her balloon were easily ignorable, but as the lesson wore on and the noise became louder, Janie's aunt, as all aunts the world over, have experienced themselves when it comes to dealing with their young nieces and nephews, began to lose her cool. No judgment. As a proud uncle myself, this is a feeling I completely understand. But the noise persisted. You don't want to be the one to yell at your niece on her birthday, especially when she is playing with the toy that you got her. So for longer than most of the saints themselves would have found possible, Janie's aunt overlooked her, just talking louder and louder and louder. But then the other kids became distracted themselves, and things just started to get out of control. Teeth began to clench and grind. Kids began to yell. And then the balloon did that the other thing balloons do when children play with them much too much. Pop. Janie. Her aunt screamed at her much louder than I think that she meant to. Are you not listening to what we are talking about? This is important stuff. Do you want to go to hell? Do you want to make God angry? I know it's your birthday, but you need to do better. Immediately after the words left her lips, Janie's aunt's heart sank in regret. There is surprisingly little comfort to be found in yelling at kids, and looking at Janie's face, it was clear that the damage was done. Six-year-olds are surprisingly bad at hiding their emotions. And while I don't think there is much of a learning moment to take out of what Janie's aunt did, as sometimes kids are amazingly good at getting on our last nerves, and truth be told, you never know what's going to stick and what won't, Nevertheless, from that day on, in Janie's young mind, playing on repeat, never far away from the surface, was etched this thought. If you don't want to go to hell, if you want to make God happy, you should do better. A thought like that one, it starts innocent enough, but it is kind of insidious like that. It plays on a loop over and over. It's like a drum growing louder over time, drowning everything else out. And so it was that Janie grew up all the while in her mind playing that single line. If I don't want to go to hell, I should do better. If I want to make God happy, I should do better. It came to define her. As it came 
to define how she tried to act in all things as well. And as the years dragged on, always on loop hearing her mind tell her that same phrase, she came in time as all people with this cloud hanging over their heads do to shorten it down. But in doing so, what was once a problematic understanding of God and Helen's sin turned instead into a problematic view of the world and Janie's place in it, where failing to be perfect in every way was the same as being sinful. But the drum beat on. I should do better. I should do better. I should do better. One time in the seventh grade in math, Janie had a test. It was on probabilities. I hate probabilities. Janie loathed them. It just wasn't how her mind thought. It didn't come naturally to her at all, but she worked really hard. She threw everything that she had at it and got a B plus. And her parents were over the moon because of course they were. Their daughter in the face of something she didn't understand gave it her all and got an 89%, not too shabby. That is something that parents should be proud of, so good on them. But even though she gave it everything, and I do mean more time than you would think would be healthy for a math test, when Janie saw that test, she got sick to her stomach every time. She glimpsed it. And at the same time, hearing her parents' applause, she came to believe something new, that they were only praising her because she was their daughter. Essentially, from that moment on, writing every good thing they had to say about her off. And in her mind, the drum beat louder. I should do better. I should do better. Then a couple years later in high school, grade 10, Janie had her first love. A boy, sandy hair, six-ish feet, contacts, new to school that year. They liked a lot of the same things. Writing, talking back and forth for hours on end about seemingly nothing. The way he looked in the mirror. Yeah, the guy was the worst. But as always happens with young love, it blossomed. And they began to email back and forth. And they talked on the phone into the wee hours of the night. And they spent every free period that they both had between classes in each other's presence, giggling and in time as the progression took hold, smooching quite a bit as well, drove their friends absolutely sick. But then one Wednesday at youth group, there was a message given for just the girls for some reason on how a sign of a quality Christian relationship is to keep things as platonic as humanly possible until marriage. And immediately the drumbeat drowned out everything else in her world. I should do better. I should be better. She cried for months, longer than she really ought to have when she broke things off with that sandy-haired boy the next day. I should do better. I should do better. I should do better. I should do better. Why can't I do better than I am? Why am I not better than this? That's a message you internalize. It's a message that in time will destroy you. 
it saps the life from you because it never allows you to see yourself as anything approaching valuable. It takes from you the pride that you should have in your achievements because it is always possible to do better. A better grade, a more fairy tale esque idea of what an ideal relationship should be, regardless of how ridiculous that ends up looking. And then as you strive to attain that better thing, what you end up doing is you just move the goalposts a little further down the field without even recognizing that that is what you are doing until you find yourself at the point where you would need to be God himself to actually live up to the crazy high standards that you set in your mind for what it means to be better than you are. No one can live up to that. And while for most of us who struggle with this problem, there is a part of us who knows that when you say it out loud, it is kind of obviously ridiculous. For some reason, still, the drum beats on. It's a common problem amongst us Christians, you could say. There is something in our faith, something that is taught at a young age even, that triggers that guilt part of our minds to push us to do what we can to be good. And while for many of us this feeling comes to be held in check one way or the other, for many others among us, this is a phrase that runs and never stops. This isn't a new problem either. It goes back to at least Paul himself, as you can see in today's passage, Romans 7, 15 to 25. You can see it real clearly. I do not understand what I do, Paul says. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. As you read Paul, you can hear the drumbeat, I should do better, I should do better. And as he finds himself unable to live out the law of God down to the smallest of possible details, you can feel the hatred of his own shortcomings seep into his voice. Paul lived in a time when what it meant to follow God was extremely rules-oriented. But to make especially sure that people lived right, rules would be piled on rules to make certain no wrong was ever done. An example, working on the Sabbath in Paul's day was considered sinful. So to make sure that rule was kept, the second rule, that it is best to not even leave the house that day, was put into place as a way of making sure that first rule was held. But in time, as always happens, these rules on rules became the new line in the sand, and so rules were added on those to make sure they were kept. And so it went that where once there was a list of laws near impossible to follow, in its place, always added on to, always shifting, was a new code that was flat out impossible to keep. And so for people like Paul, who have that need to always do better, that he never could even if he wanted to, as you read through today's passage in Romans in general, it became obvious that it destroys him. I must do better. I must do better. If I am to follow God, I am not good enough. That is Paul. That is the struggle that he had all his life. And man, does it sound familiar. But then in verse 25, 
Paul tells us something that it took him much of his life to learn. This isn't how God made us to be, perpetually, consciously tormented by the fact that we are not God ourselves and as such unable to live up to our, let's admit it now, idolatrous and sinful ideas of perfection, constantly devoured by the thoughts that we are not worth anything, constantly eating ourselves into nothing, hating ourselves to drive ourselves to unreasonable heights and making ourselves sick when we come short of that. This is not how God made us to be. Jesus Christ delivered us from all that. Regardless of how we feel about ourselves, we were made valuable. And no matter how hard we may try, we can't strip that worth from ourselves. It's baked in. God created us to walk alongside him. God created us to work in the world with him, tending creation together. God created us to be something. And most importantly, wrapped up in all of that, God delivered us from all that would tear us down, including ourselves, to rely on him. If this is you, if you are like Janie, this drumbeat playing through your mind ceaselessly, if there is anything to take from the message today, it's simply this. Christ doesn't want you to try to reach perfection yourself. He wants you to rely on him. We cannot be perfect ourselves because we are not God. But do you know what? I know someone who is. Jesus Christ And he wants us to reach out to him for everything. I know on this one, there's a fine line between theological problem and crossing into mental illness that is not possible to get over on your own. And if this is a problem that you feel you cannot handle, know that there is help. I'm always here to talk, and I know a fleet of counselors and other healthcare professionals, as well as many other believers who have suffered with this exact same problem. People you can speak with who will understand you enough to help you get your life back, to at least quiet the drum. But also know if this is you, if you are Janie, even if it will not automatically set things right, please at least listen to this as well. The grace of God is so wonderful as to save us from sin and from death. This is true, Paul tells us. But what makes the grace of God even more amazing is that it is also so wonderful as to save us from ourselves as well. It is okay to come up short. It is okay to not constantly be doing better. 
not because we strive to be sinful, but because instead, if that beat of the drum becomes your life telling you to always be better, there is a point where you get so good at pushing yourself that the need for God fades away, and then where are you? By the grace of God, he delivers us from all that and lets us know we can rely on him. That's the answer to the drum. Rely on God.